Welcome to the podcast of Grace Covenant Church, where we are transformed by God's grace, connected through relationships, and committed to service. As we dive into God's word this morning, let's open up in prayer. Father, we have gathered this morning to sing your praises and to focus our hearts and our minds on who you are and who, and who you are calling us to be in the light of that. As we open your word, I pray that we would hear you speak to us this morning, that we would have uh, willing hearts, soft hearts, open hearts, hearts eager to hear truth from you today. And then having heard that truth, I pray that we would be transformed by it. May you be in our midst by the powerful, powerful presence of your spirit. I pray it in your son's name. Amen. I started a series last week, we were just a two-week series, on Christmas. And the reason why I did it was because I feel sometimes like we in a society, in our society, we say as Christians, you know, Jesus is the reason for the season, and then we begin to kind of celebrate Christmas just like the world does. And I wanted to take a stamp, uh, just take a few moments to think about um, how we are supposed to be celebrating Christmas. What is it we're supposed to be about, and how can we make sure that we are doing this uh, in the right way for the right reasons and for the right point. And I mentioned last week, and I encourage you uh, to take time this week and over the next couple weeks to find ways of remembering that this is a holiday, a holy day. The purpose of holy days is to um, reboot your life, to reorient it around the central truths of what we claim to believe and to keep going on that path. If we've wandered astray or if our hearts drifted away from the things that we claim to believe, here's a chance for us to remember and to head back in that direction. And specifically, I ask you to remember that, that Christmas is a very important holy day, but it's not the most important holy day. That ultimately, um, we as Christians are Christians because of the cross and the empty tomb. And that one of the best ways of celebrating Christmas is to find those ways in which um, our celebration of Christ as a baby in a manger can point us forward to a, a Christ that redeems us and rises triumphantly over death. Um, and so I, I love hymns like Hark the Herald Angels Sing, where it talks about, um, where it talks about born that man no more may die, that Christ came that uh, not just to be a cute little baby, but to grow up and ultimately pay for our sins and to defeat death and rise again triumphantly. And so as you, as you celebrate Christmas, find ways of making that central to, to who you are and how you celebrate, that this is the trajectory, that this is what what uh, holy days are for, and ultimately all of our holy days, everything we do as Christians is supposed to point us uh, to the cross and to the empty tomb. We looked last week, uh, the, 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 the two-week series I've been trying to do is, is on having an unexpected Christmas, because one of the truths that's sort of um, been impressed upon me over the last couple of months, things that I've been thinking about a lot, has been how God wants to interrupt our lives in a good way. That God is a God who intervenes, and that fills us with so much hope and can give us so much encouragement and joy that that's one of the main things I've been celebrating this Christmas is that, um, is that no matter what, what we are doing or where we are or what has happened to us, that the whole point of Christmas is that God invades, God interrupts, God intervenes. And there's at least two ways that that can go. That can have both a positive and a negative spin. I think about the Christmas carols we sing, uh, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. O Come, O Come, Emmanuel, in ransomed captive Israel that waits in lowly exile here until the Son of God appears. 
that sometimes God's intervention is to remind us that at our lowest point of our lives, when, it, when the things look bleakest, when we are the least hopeful, when we don't see a way out of our current circumstances and everything it fills us with dread and anxiety and frustration and despair, God intervenes that we are never beyond the hope and reach and love of a God who interrupts. But there's another extreme too, that, that God can interrupt our life um, in a, in a, sometimes in a negative way. I think about the, the hymn, Joy to the World. Joy to the world, the Lord has come. Uh, let, uh, the, the specific line that, that encourages me or, or challenges me is, let every heart prepare him room. You see, sometimes we construct kingdoms for ourselves. Our lives get so full of, of what's going on in, in our world that sometimes there's no room for Jesus. I think about the great bad guy of the Christmas story, Herod, who had so neatly constructed his own world, there was no room for Jesus and there was no limit to the things that he wouldn't do to try and keep Jesus out of his life. I don't know where you are this morning, but I guarantee you, you're on somewhere along that spectrum. You are someplace right now hurting, frustrated, anxious, worried, uh, dis despairing. And on that extreme, here, that God has come to interrupt, to show that he has a hand in life and he is directing your life to its appointed end. He has come to bring you joy. And that is what the Christmas season about, is about. Maybe on the other extreme, you are, um, you are living in that neat little world, that castle you've constructed for yourself and you have walled it off and you are trying to defend it with every last ounce of your being. And you need to hear God is a God who intervenes and interrupts and overturns, and we need to make him room in our lives. I don't know where you are this morning, but that's the kind of uh, Christmas that I've been thinking about having, trying to maybe be both, realizing that I'm a little of both. There are times when I get so hopeless and despairing that, that I don't think anything good can happen. I need to remember that God can interrupt. And there are some times I get so arrogant and frustrated um, and so committed to my own plans and what I want to see happen that that I need to make room in it for a God who interrupts. Either one, wherever you are, I pray that you would begin to think about these things this week. Last week, I, I talked about Mary, Mary's unexpected Christmas, and how, and how here is a woman on the, on the cusp of a life that she thought was going to happen, and all of a sudden, uh, an unexpected visitor gives her an unexpected plan and asks her to submit. And we looked last week about how God can, um, about what Mary did to help us, how, how she wrestled with God's um, unexpected interruption of her life. And we looked at how um, she showed us that it's okay to be confused. It's okay to wrestle with the unexpected. It's okay to ask questions, but ultimately it's important to surrender. What's funny is I actually had to buy a, little, buy a little bit of what I was selling to you guys last week. I found myself this week in sort of a, a personally frustrating and anxious and trying time. I was sort of in this situation, and I kind of had to talk myself through my own sermon. It was a wonderful reminder that, and actually it's proof that I'm you know, preaching to myself first, that I, I was horribly confused by something going on in my life, and I just reminded myself, it's okay to be confused. And then I was wrestling with it. Couldn't figure out how it was all going to work out. And then I was reminded to ask questions, to lay my petitions before God. And then I was ultimately uh, encouraged to just surrender like Mary did. What did Mary say to the angel? Without all the facts, behold the bondservant of the Lord. 
may it be done to me according to your plan. The radical surrender that we are supposed to demonstrate as Christ, as Christ's followers. What I want to look at today is Joseph's unexpected Christmas. I want to look at the story, the same story from a different perspective, and to see how Joseph's world gets un- overturned and see what we can learn from that. Joseph's story is told in Matthew. Uh, Luke's gospel, Luke's biography of Jesus seems to be a well-researched historical narrative where Luke doesn't seem to be the primary eyewitness of things. And he just researched and interviewed people. And Luke's, Luke's biography seems to be the recollections of Mary. He has, in at least some spots, it says that Mary treasured all these things in her heart. Like these are the words that he got from Mary herself. Matthew probably was an eyewitness of these events. And his, his gospel, his biography of Jesus is written to persuade the Jews that Jesus is the Messiah. And he focuses his story on Joseph. And he tells the same story about God's interrupting, intervening plan from Joseph's perspective. It occurs in Matthew uh, chapter 1. And it starts with an unexpected detour. Matthew chapter 1, verse 18. Now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit. And Joseph, her husband, being a righteous man and not wanting to disgrace her, plan to send her away secretly. So they were engaged to be married. We talked last week how, how an engagement was an intensely um, legally binding, more big thing than it is now in our society. It is, uh, notice it says that they're just betrothed and that Joseph is called her husband. So it's a bigger deal than just our, she can't just give the ring back. The, an engagement in antiquity was basically the, the gap between when you arranged to be married, agreed to be married, and then we got all the things in, in line and we celebrated, we got a party uh, together. So they're, for all intents and purposes, married. They haven't consummated the marriage, but that's, that's where they're at. And in, this, in the midst of all of these plans, in the midst of all of, this, um, all of these things going on, this life that he's looking forward to having, he gets news. And we're not told how he gets the news, but he finds out that Mary is pregnant. Matthew interjects that by in pregnant uh, by the Holy Spirit, but it seems that, that maybe Joseph didn't get that information when it was told to him. Did Mary tell him? We don't know. Um, did word just get around? I don't know. But he learns a startling fact that the woman he is engaged to be married to is pregnant with a baby, and that baby is not his. And all of a sudden, he seems left with what to do about this. And, and it seems logical to him to end the engagement, to break it off. It says that, that he's going to send her away, but he, he's trying to do it in a very uh, honorable way. He cares about righteousness and right. He wants to do the right thing. He says Joseph was a righteous man, but he also didn't want to disgrace her. He had compassion for her. And so he's trying to find a way to where he could uh, fi- fix the situation as best he could um, given all the circumstances, tr- still being uh, truth committed to the truth, but also acting in a loving way towards Mary. This unexpected detour to his life was followed by an unexpected dream. Verse 20. But when he had considered this, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, For the child who has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Now all this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophets. 
Behold, the virgin shall be with child and shall bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means, which translated means God with us. He went to bed that night. I don't know how many nights he stayed up awake wrestling with what he was going to do about it. His, his uh, fiance was pregnant and he had to figure out how to solve the problem. How, who did he talk to about it? How much did he wrestle with it? And finally, he came to a decision about what he was going to do. He goes to bed one night and in the midst of that dream, God intervenes. Tells him, you know what? Don't be afraid to take Mary as your wife. Here's why. Invites him to, to be a part of a plan bigger than what he imagined for himself. He was planning on having a wife and a family and a career and all that stuff. And the next thing you know, he's being asked to be a part of God's redemptive plan for all the world. A couple of things that I find really interesting and, and powerful about this passage is, one, the nature of the way God speaks. We're always startled by the way God speaks, but the message of Scripture is that we follow and believe in and serve a personal living God who speaks. Mary got a visitation by an angel. The angel showed up and was in her living room, right, and, and confronted her. Joseph gets a dream. I'm not saying every dream is from God, but I do think God can speak uh, through dreams. That God can address his, his people through these circumstances. There's also another, if you, if you look closely back at that passage, there's another way in which God is mentioned to have spoken. He says, this is, what was, this is to fulfill what the Lord spoke through the prophets, the, the stories of Mary and Joseph all talk about a God who desires to be in communication with us. One of my favorite passages is Hebrews, uh, the opening verse of the book of Hebrews in the New Testament, where the writer says, um, God, after he had spoken through the prophets to our fathers in many portions and in many ways, in these last days, has spoken to us through his son, Jesus. In fact, the whole book of Hebrews is all about this basic overarching premise that we serve a God who speaks. He speaks to us through Jesus, that Jesus is the very word of God to us. He speaks to us through his spirit and through his scriptures and through his saints. Sometimes we think everything is up to us, like Joseph. That it, was, he, it was up to him to figure everything out. And when he had done so, God showed up. And told him what to do. An unexpected detour led to an unexpected dream, which was followed up by an unexpected decision. And Joseph awoke from his sleep and did as the angel of the Lord commanded him, and took Mary as his wife, but kept her as a virgin until she gave birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. It sometimes goes without saying, we kind of expect Bible stories to be about obedience. But it, it's worth noting, Joseph woke up and did what, he, what the angel told him to do. Joseph obeyed. The angel said, uh, you went to bed with one plan, wake up and do something completely different. And Joseph woke up and he did what he was asked. That's just a cool thing that, that it's worth noting. Because um, what did his friends think? Right? His friends who had counseled him the night before, who were helping him wrestle with what to do, how to handle this situation. And all of a sudden, God intervened and interrupted and overturned his plans and pushed him in a new direction. And Joseph got up and immediately went about the Lord's business. That's a powerful and wonderful and amazing thing to remember. 
one little side note about this passage that's revealed in the scripture, it says that, that he took Mary as his wife and kept her a virgin until he, she gave birth to Jesus. Um, there are some traditions that, that believe that, that Mary and Joseph didn't have any biological children themselves. Um, that the, there are references to uh, Jesus having brothers or, or, or siblings, and some, some traditions uh, assume that that refers to maybe just larger family members like cousins or something. But this passage seems to suggest that, um, that he kept her a virgin until she gave birth to Jesus, and then they went on and had um, a normal uh, husband and wife relationship, and that those people who are referenced as brothers and sisters of Jesus were actually, you know, half-brothers, but they were actual brothers and sisters of Jesus. Notice specifically the author of the book of James and also the author of Jude. Um, Jude was also a half-brother of Jesus. Just worth noting um, in passing. But what is it that I want to focus on about this story? What is it that, that nourishes me and equips me? And one of the things as I read this passage was I was overcome by the kind of person Joseph was. And I realized that, uh, that following is one of the things that we are supposed to be about. That sometimes we make Christianity about learning things and making decisions, but ultimately we're called to follow God and follow those people who are worthy of imitation. 1 Corinthians 11.1, 1, Paul says, Paul's, Paul's tell the Corinthians, imitate me even as I imitate Christ. Do what I do because I'm doing what Christ wants me to do. Paul tells the Philippians, join in following my example and observe those who walk according to the pattern you have in us. Paul says, follow me and pick out some other people who are also following Jesus and follow us all as we follow Jesus. That way, if one person kind of goes off track, you're not going to follow them over the cliff. But, but you kind of have the basic idea of these people are following Christ, so we should follow them. Also, uh, Paul tells Timothy, let no one look down on you because you are young, but you set an example for the believers. That we are called to be a part of an imitating and mentoring faith. Every single one of us is supposed to have people who are older and wiser and better followers of Jesus than us, than we are trying to imitate and be like. And we are supposed to be that person worthy of imitation for somebody else. That we're links in a chain. We're part of a, a grand group of people called the church who are all trying to follow Jesus. And we're all trying to encourage people as we've been given the grace of God. And we are trying to imitate others who are worthy of imitation and be ourselves those people who are worthy of imitation. And I think Joseph is one of those people. I think Joseph is one of those people that we should aspire to be like for very specific reasons. I find in his in this brief story, I find five attributes of Joseph that make him a person that I want to be like. And I think you should want to be like too. First, Joseph had a righteous heart. Joseph had a righteous heart. It says that he was righteous. When he found out that, that Mary was pregnant and it wasn't his baby, it says that he was righteous. He, he didn't know the whole story, but he knew uh, enough about biology and nature that, that this, is, this could only mean a handful of things. And the truth mattered to Joseph. See, we live in an age where um, we somehow think that, that righteousness means self-righteousness. We know that, I'm not trying to say that, that Joseph was perfect. None of us are. There's no one righteous, completely holy righteous. No, not one. We're supposed to be striving towards it. But none of us is perfect. We've all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. This isn't about that. This is about caring about the truth, caring about what is right. 
I think one of the greatest ways in which the church has been emasculated and eviscerated in modern times is by the misuse of the word hypocrisy. Somehow we think that we're not allowed to hold a standard if we don't meet that standard. That's actually not true at all. A hypocrite isn't that. Christians are people who both hold a standard and can't meet it. We both say the standard is perfection and we fail to meet it. Oh, and by the way, I know a guy who can, by his mercy and grace, help you meet that standard. Hypocrisy doesn't mean holding to a standard and then failing to meet it. Hypocrisy means um, holding someone else to a standard and not holding yourself to that same standard. That's all it means. And, and so many times we have Christians all across this world and in our churches who don't understand that they are supposed to be standing for righteousness. That righteousness doesn't mean self-righteousness or exalting yourself. It means caring about what's right. And Joseph was, was that man. Joseph had a righteous heart. Not only was he, did he have a righteous heart, um, he had a compassionate heart. Joseph had a compassionate heart. It says, that, it says that when he found out that Mary was pregnant, he was righteous, but he also didn't want to disgrace her. He planned to send her away secretly. He wanted to demonstrate his love for Mary. He wanted to be compassionate towards her, give her, not try to embarrass her or shame her or bully her. It's weird how we feel like um, we have to pick one of these two extremes, righteousness or compassion. And the church seems to oscillate between these two pendulums. And they go hand in hand. But periods of time in our church, we, um, we're, we, we, we care about righteousness, we care about truth, we care about right, and we come off sometimes as bullying. We use the truth to beat people or whip them with how they fail to meet our standards and we become either legalist or Pharisees or, or religiously cruel. Or the, maybe the period of time we're in right now where the pendulum has swung completely opposite way in which we are in the so uh, desperate need to be compassionate to people that we never actually speak the truth. That we think what compassionate means is, 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 is overwhelming acceptance for what anybody else wants to do. That there is no truth. That what, whatever way you have found to be happy in the world, however, however way you're coping with the brokenness that we all experience, um, however way you choose, choose to do that, I'm going to put my arm around you and I'm going to love you. And love you means accepting you and accepting what you're doing. But see, the Bible doesn't believe that that is love at all. The Bible teaches that the wages of sin is death, which means when we live in accordance with the way God made the universe, we find life. And when we live out of accordance with the way God made, universe, made the universe, those actions produce death in our lives. And so we have to find a way to be compassionate to other people because we need compassion. We are all broken people, sinful people, people who make mistakes. But part of that compassion means to have somebody not beat us with the truth, but to tell us the truth. That righteousness and goodness <clears throat> is unattainable by ourselves, but by the power of Christ um, can make us whole again. We need both righteousness and compassion. Because righteousness without compassion is too hard. And compassion without righteousness is too soft. Joseph had them both. Joseph had righteousness and he had compassion. Third, Joseph had a soft heart. 
Joseph had a soft heart. He was given this, this very difficult plan, this very difficult situation, and he didn't know what to do about it. It says he wrestled with it, and he finally came to a thing, came to, a, to what he was going to do. And he went to bed that night, and his, all his plans got chucked out the window. But Joseph's heart was malleable. It was changeable. Not, he wasn't a pushover that you could just um, make do whatever you wanted, but he was willing to be molded and shaped by God and to have his life redirected. The image here is of a, of a potter with clay. And there are two kinds of clay. There's clay that's still soft and you can still shape. And there's clay that's already been baked and hardened. And the only way that kind of pot is going gonna, is gonna, is gonna to be shaped is by breaking it. So many times we are so committed and stubborn to our own plans that we are immovable, that we cannot lay down our arms even when we know we are wrong, that we will, we will cut off our nose to spite our own face. We will saw off the, tree, the, the limb of the tree branch that we're sitting on because we don't want to admit that we could be wrong. We don't want to allow for the possibility that we don't see all ends and we don't want to allow for the, real, the reality of God intervening in our life. Joseph went to bed with a firm plan and he woke up with something he never thought to consider and he was willing to move because he, had, because he has a soft heart, a changeable heart, a heart that God could work with. Have you ever felt what a hard heart feels like? You ever been there? You ever been in the midst of a, like an argument with a friend or a spouse or a family member and you kind of feel backed into a corner, right? And you kind of know you're on the losing end of this thing, but you will not lay down your arms. You are going to do what you are going to do no matter what. There's no part of you that wants to say, um, you know, maybe, maybe I need to back away from this. Maybe, maybe I haven't, um, maybe, maybe I haven't considered everything. Or maybe you are, you've picked out a plan and a course and a direction for your life and you keep doubling down on that and heading in that direction even though God keeps trying to move you in other directions and you feel frustrated by it, but you keep pushing on that direction unwilling to be guided and shifted and, and changed. Or maybe, um, maybe there have been hurts in your life. Maybe someone has hurt you very deeply or a whole bunch of people, a family member, a friend, a coworker, a boss. And you are so determined not to relinquish your anger or hate until everybody else gets what they deserved. That's a hardness of heart. And that's the kind of hardness that's going to lead you down a path you don't want to go. Joseph had a soft heart. Joseph had his plans and was willing to have those plans shaped and directed and molded and transformed by God. So Joseph had a righteous heart, a compassionate heart, a soft heart. Fourth, Joseph had a trusting heart, a trusting heart. It doesn't say it clearly, but it, it's there between the lines of the text. He, uh, he doesn't get the proof that Mary gets. Mary gets a visit from the Lord in her living room. An angel shows up and says this. And then, the, and then the angel gives her more proof. She says, the angel tells Mary, go check with Elizabeth, the one you thought was not, could, couldn't have a baby. She's pregnant and she's six months along. Mary gets more proof than Joseph does. 
Mary's, Mary gets invited to go see where the impossible has already happened. Joseph gets a dream, and that dream is it. And he's expected to act upon it. And he trusts God. This trusting thing is, is an incredibly difficult thing to, uh, to manage. Sometimes, I don't know about you, sometimes I meet people who have a better um, they're better able to trust and have faith than I am. I, I sometimes want all the evidence, right? I want more evidence, and that shouldn't be a problem. Don't ever feel like if you have questions or you want your questions answered about Christianity, it's wrong to seek those questions. Christianity is an evidence-giving religion, okay? Right from the start, Christianity is, is, is a faith that is, is sought to give proof of what of, uh, of what it believed. In fact, the first sermon in Acts, the first sermon of the church, Peter's Pentecost sermon, was preached uh, uh, several hundred yards away from the place where if Christianity weren't true, they could have found evidence to the contrary. The great conclusion of, of Peter's Pentecost sermon is, let the whole house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. That we are an evidence-giving uh, religion and it's okay to seek that evidence, but sometimes we don't have all the evidence. In fact, you will never have an exhaustive um, amount, body of evidence. You'll never have all the information necessary. You simply have to make do with what you have, and you have to trust not the evidence, but the person who supplies the evidence. Joseph trusted God, and Joseph had enough to go on. He didn't wait till he had the whole story. He didn't, he didn't need you know, sonograms and an actual angel visit. He didn't need to go see Elizabeth. The word of the Lord came to him and his trusting heart. It wasn't naivety. It was a deep assurance that the God who made the universe is trustworthy. And he trusted. Last, Joseph had an obedient heart. He had an obedient heart. He didn't just trust he obeyed. He went out and did what he was asked to do. He, he pulled the trigger. If you, it, it, he went out and did the thing he was asked to do. Those two things go hand in hand. The same way that you can't have just righteousness without compassion and can't have compassion without righteousness. You can't have trust without obedience and you can't have obedience without trust. If you have trust without obedience, you don't really trust because you're unwilling to act upon it. In fact, uh, Trust is only trust if you're willing to risk about it. In fact, it doesn't matter what you say. I could follow you around for a week. and I went to, If I followed the places you go, the things you did, the conversations you had, the things you spent your money on, the things you laughed about, I could probably assemble a pretty good biography of the things that you trust in. Your obedience actually reflects and reveals your trust, the things that you're actually trusting in. And if you try to obey without actually trusting, what you're going to be trying to do is, is, is perform acts of religious devotion by sheer will and you will run out of gas quickly. You were never meant to run on your own power. You're meant to run on the power of God. There's a, there's a passage at the end of the first chapter of Colossians where, it says, where Paul says, I labor mightily according to the power of God which labors and works in me. That we are supposed to be obeying and because we trust. And because we trust, we're supposed to be obeying. I think there's a song about it, right? Trust and obey. Remember that old hymn? Trust and obey because there's no other way to be happy in Jesus. These five things. Joseph was a righteous man. He had a righteous heart. He had a compassionate heart. He had a soft heart. 
He had a trusting heart. He had an obedient heart. What about this is challenging you today, speaking to you today, encouraging you today, um, pushing you to become the person God is calling you to be in his son, Jesus Christ. Are you, have you, um, in, in your attempt to be compassionate, failed to take a stand for truth? Do you need to develop and work on this righteousness that Joseph so clearly manifested? Or in your, in your attempt to be so uh, righteous and defend the truth, have you failed to be compassionate and loving to those people who are, who are struggling and broken just like you? The people Christ didn't just come to, to beat with the truth, but to redeem and to save and to love. Have you been living in a hardness of heart? And do you hear God saying to you today, lay down your arms, let me make you what you will. Let, let me make you what I will. Let me shape and direct and guide you. You're not gonna understand it all, but lay down your hurts, lay down your anger, lay down your frustration, lay down your confusion, and let me shape you. Are you hearing God say today, you have been trusting in the wrong things. You've been trusting in your own intelligence, in your own health, in your own strength, in your own finances, in everything else. You need to place your trust in something that will hold. And that only thing that will hold is to place your trust in Jesus Christ. Maybe all of this is, is I haven't said anything new to you this morning. Maybe you know all of this, but you've been sitting there and you haven't been able to act on it. You haven't been willing to act on it. You haven't wanted to. Maybe God is calling you today to simply obey. Do it. Stop being just a hearer of the word and do it. And find in doing it the joy that Jesus came to bring us by intervening in our lives. Where are you today? How can we follow Joseph and be a man like Joseph who showed us what it meant to be somebody who followed and trusted God so completely? How do you need to respond today because you have heard this today? How can you be a role model like Joseph was for us? How can you demonstrate these characteristics to somebody else so that they can be encouraged to live the life God is calling them to be in Jesus Christ as well? How is God trying to interrupt and intervene in your life today? Is he trying to speak hope and joy into, into a world that that's, uh, feels like it's collapsing or, or not moving or hopeless? Or is he trying to shoehorn his way into a world that needs to prepare him room? How is God trying to open your eyes to, to get you to have an unexpected Christmas? Let's pray. Father, thank you that you provided us such worthy examples. Thank you for men like Joseph who demonstrated to us what it means to be uh, followers of you, who showed us the path. Help us to be people like Joseph who are both righteous and compassionate, who are both trusting and obedient, but ultimately, Father, who have soft hearts, who are able to be molded the way you desire to mold us so that we might become the people you desire us to be, not just for our own sake, but for the benefit of your kingdom and for your plan, which is coming true in our midst. Thank you for being a God that intervenes. Thank you that in the midst of our hopelessness, you bring joy. Help us to make room for you in our lives and find our lives transformed by what you desire to do. I pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. For more information about grace, visit our website at grace360.org.